Today's reading comes from Malachi 3, 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Carrie. Morning, Redemption. Good to see you all. If you're new, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here. Glad that you are here. Uh, just a, a point of clarification on uh, James, our host today. Uh, both of us, our first Sundays were, uh, were the same day. Uh, here at Redemption Arcadia, uh, just a little bit over eight years ago, um, I did not know James. Um, it was interesting. He he was uh, he had moved to Phoenix and he was searching for a church. It was my first Sunday at Redemption Arcadia, so he happened to come to Redemption, just looking for a church. And during the sermon, I had a, an illustration about hockey. And he said, well, I guess I found my church because he grew up playing hockey. And, and I want you to know, I talked about Jesus during the sermon as well, but it was the hockey that made James decide to stay. So, um, And also, by the way, I mentioned hockey in that first sermon and, and 50 other people left the church, so it didn't work out so well. Um, anyway, a um, w- couple things uh, still before we get to the message. Number one, two people requested to be baptized today, and so we're going to be doing that after the first service, so please stick around and head out there uh, for that celebration. <laughs> Somebody's very excited about that. <laughs> um, so we're exci- we are excited about that. Uh, we're going to be doing that after this service. And then the second thing is I want to call up Lacey Floyd and uh, any staff or elders or deacons who happen to be here, we'd love for you to come up also. In fact, let me get this out of the way for a minute. Lacey, you have to get in front. I know that's not where you like to be, but... So many of you know Lacey, some of you don't, but um, we've had her up here before uh, talking about what she's doing. She used to be in the industry that James and Perry were in. She was a uh, wealth manager and very good at it, uh, but felt the call uh, of of, uh, God in her life to uh, become not just a missionary, but an overseas missionary in some of the toughest areas in uh, the world. So she gave all that up and has been training for the last more than a year, uh, actually, uh, for that, and has now uh, hooked up with a family, the Lukes, uh, who are in Kurdistan, which is um, north of Iraq, and in northern Iraq, um, and, and you're leaving for there tomorrow, is that right? Yeah, so, and she's going to be gone for two years now, so um, we, Redemption Arcadia, you need to understand, we are her sending church. Uh, it's, just, it's not just that we know her and appreciate what she's doing and want to pray for her. 
We are in partnership with her on this. We are her sending church. And so for the next two years, we need to be praying for her. And uh, if you're not on her email list to get her uh, updates, I would highly recommend that you uh, figure out a way to do that. She'll be around. And then um, I was reminded as she walked up here, she has the lanyard on. So this is her last Sunday here, and she's still serving in children's ministry, even though this is her uh, last Sunday here. And so we want to pray for uh, you, Lacey, as you're being sent away. And, and you're a, uh, you really are a, I, I know you're not a child, but you're a child of this church. You're a child of ours. So many of us uh, feel that way about you. We're going to miss you terribly. Uh, we're going to be praying for you. And, and um, just please uh, come back uh, for your furlough in, in two years and come see us. So let's gather around Lacey, please, and pray for her. Lord God, again, we're thankful for how you not only equip and empower your people, but then you call them. Uh, and even after you call them, you continue to equip, equip and empower them. And uh, Lacey's journey has been a great testimony to, the, to us, to believers, to non-believers, to her family, to her church, uh, about uh, the power of Christ, to the power of the gospel. And so we uh, praise you for that. We ask that you would bless Lacey in her ministry and in her endeavors. And, and Father, that um, you would provide for her and that you would protect her. You would give her words to say. Uh, you would help her to learn the language quickly, miraculously, uh, so that she would have an impact almost immediately. God, we pray for her and we pray that all the glory would be given to you pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lacey. So if you would, we're still in Malachi. This is our fifth of six weeks in Malachi. If you would turn to Malachi chapter 3, which is what Carrie read for us. Uh, Malachi is correcting God's people. Uh, with God's words that he has given him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Malachi says repeatedly uh, throughout this uh, book. And we've called it heart surgery because they are very challenging messages about the correction that uh, God needs to give his people and they are applicable to us even today. Every single one of these has been. Uh, the four... Um, uh, Malachi presents these in four disputes that God has with his people. God says, I have this against you. You need to correct this. The people push back and say, nah, and then God presents his case. Uh, we've had a dispute about God's unconditional love. How have you loved us? God's people have asked. We've had a dispute about uh, the fact that God calls for full surrender, and we're kind of returning to that a little bit today. Um, but again, the, the people say, how have we not fully surrendered to you? And then God shows them. We had a dispute about faithfulness and, and covenant uh, and their lack of faith. And then last week we had a dispute about judgment and justice. And today's disputation is about giving, what we might also call stewardship. And you, you should know, if you don't, you should know that giving is always a touchy subject in church. There are two comments that as a pastor I get more than any other comment about giving, and I just want to share them uh, with you. Here's the first one. 
Frank, you don't preach very much on giving. You really need to do more of that. Well, at Redemption, we preach on giving, and here we're talking about giving money. Uh, That's the implication. You don't preach very much on giving at Redemption. Uh, At Redemption, we preach on giving money simply when it comes up in the text, and that's about it. Unless, Unless there's a special reason or occasion to do it otherwise for a capital campaign or something, we bring it up when the text brings it up. And guess what? It comes up in today's text. <laughs> but here's the other thing. Um, if we would understand giving as this idea of stewardship and look at it as how we steward or manage our time and our talent and giftedness and every other aspect of our life, you would begin to realize that redemption does actually talk about giving almost every week because we're calling people to serve almost every single week because of who we are in Christ. And serving is an act of giving. So there's that tension there. Here's the other comment that I get all the time, uh, mostly from people outside of the church when they find out that I'm a pastor, not inside the church, but here's what they say. The only thing a church wants is my money. Now that is possibly true in some churches, uh, but it's not true in, in as many churches as you might think it is. In fact, Here we go. I I thought I'd just get into the hard stuff right away this morning. Um, The problem, the real problem probably isn't the church most of the time in this case. At least I can guarantee you it's not the problem at Redemption Church, at any of our congregations. The real problem is more likely the heart of the person who says this. The issue of money is offensive because it's a false god to the person who says this. And so when the church does preach on it, say, once a year, it's one times too many. It's one time too many. And that that exposes your heart. Uh, Here you go. I'll never have another golf illustration again. You know, people have said golf is a great character uh, character builder. No, it's not. It's a character revealer. Money can be a character builder, but it's also a character revealer. It's a heart revealer, and we need to understand that. I can assure you that at Redemption Church, our desire is not that our coffers be full, but that your hearts be full, and that is exactly what this message today is about, is about our hearts. We also need to remember that this fifth disputation comes on the heels of God explaining his justice and judgment in the previous five verses, and he starts by saying in verse 6, which is a a truly wonderful verse. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, you, my people, you, the church, you are not consumed. So here's what God is saying here. Three things, three things. First, he says, you never have to guess when it comes to me. You never have to guess. I haven't changed And I'm not going to change. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. How many of you know somebody that one of your challenges with them is you never know who you're going to get when you see them, right? Your boss, your spouse, coworkers, friends, neighbors, whatever. You're never sure, okay? You can be sure with God. He never changes. And therefore, he's saying, his justice, his judgment, and his salvation never change. And neither does his faithfulness for you, for me, 
and neither does his covenant with you and with me. So God says the problem isn't me wandering off, it's you. So he says, quit pointing the finger at me and take a look at those three that are pointing right back at you. He says, my word does not change, my character does not change, my faithfulness does not change, my purpose does not change, my wisdom does not change, my judgments do not change. You don't have to guess when it comes to me, says the Lord. Second of all, God says, it would be really helpful if you would spend less time wondering where I am and instead take a closer look at where you are. Because I'm not the one who's wandering, you are the one who's wandering. God says, I haven't gone anywhere. God says, I haven't changed my mind about anything. God says, I have not tried to reinterpret my teaching and my doctrine. God says, I have, I have never adjusted my expectations of my people. God says, I haven't caved into the culture around me. And God says, I certainly haven't expected anything from you that is irrational, unreasonable, or uncommunicated. And third, the benefit of me not changing, God says, the benefit of my immutable nature is that you will not be consumed. You will not suffer needlessly in eternity. Your place in my kingdom will never perish. Now, you might look at that statement and ask, well, consumed by who or by what? That's a legitimate question. And God actually answers it in verse 11 later on in this passage. He says, uh, consumed by the devourer of you. The devourer of you. Okay, Pastor Frank, still not helpful. What is that? What is this devourer? Well, there's two things that seek to devour us. Number one is Satan. Spiritual warfare is real. Read Ephesians 6. And don't just read the first half of Ephesians 6. Get to that second half. Uh, Again, I'm stunned at, at how often people will come to me after I've said something like that and say, I had no idea that this church believed that spiritual warfare is real. We believe in the Bible, and it's taught in the Bible that it's real. Jesus taught about it. Spiritual warfare is real. Satan is coming for us. He wants to devour us. And second of all, our unhealthy, ungodly desires want to devour us. It's that part of our flesh that desires sin and runs after false gods. Because God does not change, we can count on him to defeat Satan and give us the strength in the face of our unhealthy unhealthy desires. And again, the problem is not and never has been that God is changing, but that we wander, we turn aside, we chase our wisdom rather than submitting to his wisdom. We create the problem, and then, of course, we blame God for it. God is lovingly trying to point all of this out to us in this passage. And he reminds us that this is not a new problem, but it's an age-old problem. Look at the next verse, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept to them. Return to me. He's calling for repentance. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? See, every call that God has on his people, they're pushing back. They're disputing it. They're saying, nah-uh. How shall we return? So we see in this verse, God is saying, everyone before us has done the same thing, turned aside in some way, at some time. And those who come after us, 
God's people who come after us will also struggle with, us, with this, as do we. The challenges we have in the church and with the gospel, you need to understand, they are not new. What did Solomon write 3,100 years ago? There is nothing new under the sun. And, and yes, the challenges and false teachings and the desires that people have to change core doctrines of the Christian faith, they often get repackaged so that on the surface they might appear new, but know your history. We have dealt with some variation of every single challenge to the church today at some time in the past. There is nothing new under the sun. So the question is not, is there something new that will finally take the church down? That's not the question. The question, rather, is will we stand steadfast in the midst of the world's onslaught? Because the world's onslaught will never end. Here are some of the things that aren't changing and that we at Redemption Church will stand steadfast on. It's not all of them, but it's some of them. Here you go. Salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. The Bible is God's authoritative and last word and is our only authority for life. Atonement or redemption from sin is by blood. It is not looking at the example of Jesus and trying to do better. Atonement is by the blood, the sacrificial blood of the perfect sacrificial lamb, Jesus. God's desire is to be reconciled to people and to redeem and restore his creation, which is coming. God is one, but is manifest in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The fallen nature of humans is not good, but it is sinful. And there is a godly, biblical, sexual, and gender ethic and reality that God expects his people to embrace. And so when we turn away from these things or anything else that is of God... God calls for his people to return, to repent. But how? What does repentance look like? How do we return? It's really interesting. The fact that God's people, who are the ones that are guilty of walking away, ask this question, I think it indicates five things about those in Malachi's day for sure, and certainly uh, many of us today. Number one, God's people were stubborn. How many times in Scripture does God describe his people as stiff-necked? It's 18. And another 55 times he describes his people as stubborn. So I went to North High School. I can do math. 73 times God calls his people stubborn or stiff-necked because we are. He's not being hard on us. He's just being descriptive. Second of all, these people lacked humility. In other words, they refused to submit to God's wisdom. They were arrogant. Third, they were wise in their own eyes, but foolish toward God, which is a consequence of number two. Number four, one of their false gods was that they always had to be right, which is also a consequence of number two. Being right was one of their idols. They were not teachable. They just walked around dropping their little truth bombs on everybody and were never interested in learning anything for themselves. And then number five, one of the biggest reasons that they did not want to repent was because their hearts had become greedy, covetous, and lacked compassion and generosity. And this, this all makes sense when we say then that repentance really is an issue of the heart. 
Repentance is an issue of the heart. Martin Luther, the great reformer, 600 years ago, very famous for saying and writing that the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. All day long, that's what Christians need to be doing, is turning toward God, turning toward God, turning away from sin and turning toward God, turning toward God. And, and that's why we walk into this rest, the rest of this passage, which then becomes about giving, about stewardship, because it's about our hearts. So verse 8, God says, Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? And God answers, in your tithes and contributions. We need to understand, this is critical here. The definition of robbing is different than we might expect here, as God will explain more fully in verses 9 and 10. God defines robbing not by what is taken from him, but by what is withheld from him. God defines robbing not by what is taken from him, but by what is withheld from him. And it is their whole heart that's being withheld. It's their whole heart. Sure, perhaps a part of their heart is turned toward God, but God calls for full surrender. So for a minute, let's talk about this word tithe, perhaps some helpful and interesting information here. First of all, the word translated tithe literally means one-tenth. And I know many of us know that. It means just one-tenth. What we may not know is that one-tenth is not all that was required under the Old Testament Mosaic law. In fact, it was the bare minimum. The bare minimum was one-tenth, 10%. That's interesting to consider today when most people treat giving one-tenth of their income as the goal to aspire to and the maximum amount that we should ever hope to give. When we do a study and add up all the various Old Testament offerings, temple taxes, and giving commands and expectations, it actually comes to about 26% of your income. By some calculations, some scholars have said it's not 26, it's 28. I'm using the lower one. So if you're under the Mosaic Law, the expectation is actually 26%. Isn't it nice that we live under the New Covenant today? (laughs) Second of all, here, here you go. Check this out. Your tithe was on anything, anything that you gained or was given to you or that you produced in any way. Anything. So, uh, don't need a show of hands, but I'm guessing some of you got gift cards for Christmas. So, you got a $50 gift card at Macy's. Uh, God wants to know where his $5 is. That's the Mosaic Law. Uh, Any of you urban farmers happen to harvest a chicken in the last month or so? So where is God's thigh or two drumsticks? I'm not kidding. This was expected. You You would harvest a chicken, and they would bring a part of that to the priests at the temple as an offering. They were required to do that. Anyone grow some nice herbs in your backyard garden? Any of you so proud of your backyard garden? Oh, look what I grew this week, okay. Well, we at Redemption Arcadia have not seen anywhere near a tenth of your mint, your dill, your basil, parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme, Simon and Garfunkel in any way, shape, or form. Nothing. None of that. It's a heavy message, so I got to inject a few little laughs in there somehow. Sorry to be so cheap. 
That's ironic. <laughs> I am way off script right now, y'all. <laughs> but why? Really, a tenth of my dill? Okay, why? Why this expectation from God? Well, these tithes, contributions, and offerings were needed to support the life and work of the Levite priests who were doing God's work. It was also to support the temple and everything that goes on there, the operating expenses. It was to help the, uh, the poor and the oppressed, but it was also an indication of their heart. Were they really with God? Were they really God's people? God doesn't need this stuff. What he wants, though, is our heart. That's the difference, and it's an indication of our heart. And, and, and when God's people hold back even a portion of the tithe of the offering, God says, there's a problem with your heart that is willing to rob me. That's the problem. Consider now how radically this has changed in the New Testament under the new covenant with the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. Paul says, each of God's people must give what they have decided to give in their heart, and they are to do it not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Because God wants our hearts. He just wants our hearts. Everything else will follow if he has our hearts. But while we are now under grace and the moving of the Holy Spirit, it's interesting, Paul balances this teaching twice. He tells us in, our, in his writings that we will also reap what we sow. And so if we sow sparingly, he says, you're going to reap sparingly. And that notion is the prime theme of the last four verses in this passage today. Let me reread them uh, to you, starting in verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. You're sowing sparingly, therefore you're reaping sparingly, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no need for more. I will rebuke the devourer of you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a delight, a, a, a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God says to his people, you're living under a curse of your own doing because you're not bringing the whole tithe to me. You are sowing sparingly, and therefore you are reaping sparingly. And the curse is now of scarcity, which is the one thing that human beings are most frightened of, scarcity. We've talked about that before. Scarcity of economic sufficiency, scarcity of time, scarcity of ability, scarcity of sleep. We are afraid of scarcity. And God is saying, the curse you're living under is this scarcity because you are scarcely giving anything to me. The fruits of your soil are being destroyed. It's a metaphor for the fact that your life would be more blessed and abundant if you had hearts of generosity rather than hearts of greeting and hoarding and indifference. Unhealthy desires and an unhealthy heart destroy and rot the fruit of our lives. And God is so sure of this that he challenges people, he challenges his people to test him on this. He dares, God dares his people. Does, does God have many of these tests in his word? 
No, but a lot of us who read the Bible, we know about this one because it's, it's, it's so rare that he does something like this. And the reason he does it is so basic and so simple. A generous heart always yields a selfless, joyful, generous life. That's what he's looking for. A life that embraces the riches and the blessings of God rather than the false gods of this world is a life that will always give you a life of abundance. But stinginess begets stinginess. Here's another way to say it. Being faithful and generous to God guarantees he will always supply our needs, which is exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. It's amazing that uh, James, today, that was perfect, you mentioned chapter 4, verse 19. Yeah? Okay. Good. We did? No. Okay. You liar. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I know, I am, and I'm forgetting stuff, so that's why I believed you. So, yeah. Boston Bruins fans are the worst. But here's what we need to get clear, because our modern American idea of blessing is so jacked up. Can I get an amen? Yeah, that was really um, committed. Yeah. Uh, here's what the Old Testament scholar Gordon Hugenberger says, God will meet your, our needs, but not all our greeds. In other words, here you go. In other words, you're going to eat. You're going to eat. It, it, you just might not ever get to eat at steak 44. We going to Sizzler. We going to Sizzler. Sizzler even still open? I don't even know. Okay. You'll always have something to wear. He will adorn you with threads, but it might not be Saks Fifth Avenue. So, hello, Old Navy Sail Rack. Nordstrom's Last Chance. My sister's closet. That's a, by the way, that's a store in case you. (laughs) Y'all know that's a store in Arcadia, right? Will you come up and just finish? (laughs) Can I have one more of these? You're always going to have a place to live. It, it, it just might not have a garage or a yard or a pool, which actually for some people is a blessing. Okay, yeah. We had a pool once. We don't anymore. It's so much easier. <laughs> uh, have we mentioned this in the past? I'm sure we have. God's definition of blessing is way different than our definition of blessing, and that's one of the things that we wrestle with. And based on the six verses in today's passage, whose definition of blessing is the one that needs to change? Well, it's ours. This is not a prosperity gospel. You need to understand that. In fact, it's the furthest thing from it. This passage, unfortunately, has been corrupted in Christian culture because too many false teachers have used used it to, to preach that you can get your greeds met if you just give us enough. These preachers are missing the point purposely, I believe, and if anyone tells you that you can rich, get rich or have the car or the house of your dreams by giving to the church, you need to turn around and run. You need to turn around and run. They are heretics, and that is heresy. This passage is about the reality of finding our blessing, our joy, and our life in God and his Messiah, Jesus, and the generosity of our hearts that results. God wants our whole heart. It is the heart that demonstrates our gospel joy 
by giving to God in a way that honors him and does not rob him. It was the heart of God who went to the cross for us so that we wouldn't have to do anything except open our arms to Jesus and be embraced by him so that we could live in eternity in the presence of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And man, it's hard uh, sometimes. But this is, this is where our faith is challenged most and best. When we come to these passages in God's word that, that tells us things that, that we don't necessarily want to hear and that are contrary to our desires and our hopes in, in many respects, and yet we know they're right. And there's the tension. And so you've promised not only to teach us well, but you've promised to fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can do this. And so we call on you to help us to do that now. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.